Welcome back, podcast listeners. We're here with episode 119, and we have a special guest with us today, Marcia Vlakovic. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've got that correct, but um, Marcia is a lawyer, and she's done some amazing work and, and has a really good uh, history of, of really different areas of work, and, and I think it's something we're really going to dive deep today, Tony. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things you know, a lot of our clients are interested in, who are SME owners, is getting a big check one day in the future. What I, I, talk, I call it the the check that change a life, changes a life, but a, or once in a lifetime check. Um, now, you have huge amounts of legal experience on people getting that check or not getting the check properly, or um, working with VC firms and telling them to walk away and not giving them the check. So, so basically what we're gonna talk about today is a lot, and uh, Marcia will give some stories and things like that, but actually uh, talk about, well, first of all, your background, but also, um, how to be able to maximise that check one day in the future that everyone actually wants. So Marcia, welcome. Thank you, thanks for having me. <laughs> no, absolute pleasure. So we've worked with you for a while now. So, um, so first of all, your background has always been in legal, but uh, do you just want to give a quick background of where you've come from and where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. So I started off in um, law firms, uh, mainly mid to top tier in Australia, Brisbane and Melbourne. Um, I then went into a couple of different startups. Um, I actually ended up um, doing a JV with a startup up on the Gold Coast where we developed um, a product, a legal product, ran it all the way through. Um, I recently exited that. Um, I also uh, was involved in a venture capital firm uh, up in Brisbane. Uh, uh, actually helped set it up as well as um, um, sat on and make, made decisions around which sort of investments we should make and um, helping those companies through, uh, investing in them as well as um, uh, helping the fund exit a couple of different ventures as well. Um, so it has been quite diverse and throughout a whole range of industries as well, which has been really interesting. Yep. So that's quite hands-on compared to, I guess, just looking through contracts. If you're sort of making decisions on companies as well, it's sort of I guess a different aspect to what most people would deem as a legal, like as a legal professional? Yeah, absolutely. It's been quite commercial and that's the part I really enjoy about it, is actually going and seeing what the company does and how it does things. I think legal should be much more than just contracts, transactional, you know, we look at this, we give it back to you and that's the end of our role. Yep. Um, lawyers should really partner with you and should actually be there from the start, making sure you're making the right decisions all the way through. Um, you should have a commercial lens on these things. It shouldn't just be you've done the right thing legally. It should be how can we maximise the value proposition here? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I've often said is people think of lawyers as going to see them to either avoid a conflict or because they've got a conflict. Uh, so realistically, what you do on a commercial aspect with clients is help clients, one, avoid the conflict, but help them achieve their goal. That's right. So it's, uh, which is, you know, it should be a celebration. Mm. Uh, not, you know, so it's not about avoiding a conflict, it's about a celebration from that aspect. Is that correct? Yep, absolutely. It's one of the best parts of the, of the role is when you've seen a company sort of go through from early iterations right up to doing really well, being successful and knowing that you've sort of formed the basis back in the beginning for them to be able to leverage and achieve those goals. Uh, I think one of the most important things at the very beginning is your structures, is making sure that you've got everything in place um, that you can leverage off. You've got your IP set up right, your employees are on a, um, a good employment agreement uh, and you have, you know, you have a good trust structure backing you or a company, whatever is sort of most suitable to the entity that you're trying to grow. Yeah, just on that basis, um, 
When you think about, you know, clients sometimes say they want that big check and they want $20 million for their business one day in the future, as, as an example. And there's, there's, there's a whole different range of ways they can do that. Or their business is at a stage where it's mature and it could potentially be an you know, initial public offering and going, going uh, uh, public. So, but realistically, you know, clients and family-owned businesses, it could be just a family succession mm-hmm. uh, where sometimes you have... Uh, second and sometimes third generations conflicting with the older generations, different mindset, different perspective, uh, different view on investing. Uh, the younger generation might have more of an, you know, an environmental thought process around investing, whereas the older generation are happy with their $2 million worth of Rio Tinto shares, as an example. And they can create those type of conflicts as well from the corporate governance side. But it's basically, it can either be a trade sale Somebody might come in like a venture capitalist or private equity and take an equity stake in the business um, or could be potentially going to an IPO um, as well. So realistically, that's how the three major ways they get the big check. But let's, let's sort of go through them. If a VC comes in, you've worked on both sides of VC. Mm-hmm. So you've worked um, based on as a, in a startup yourself, mm-hmm. but you've also worked for a venture capital, basically saying, here's the legal perspective. Um, with a VC, there is always an exit plan. Mm-hmm. They're not looking Absolutely. at it for long term. Can we, can we talk about that? That's sometimes parts that somebody, I'm selling my business, I can have stars in my eyes and the check uh, that Mr. and Mrs. VC want to provide us and help the business grow. But you have to understand that they're going to want to exit one day in the future. So if those goals aren't necessarily met, they still want their money back. So can you talk about that uh, as an aspect of where people have to see that as both an opportunity or potential threat at the same time? Absolutely. And I think this is one of the key things when you're getting venture capital or angel funding is making sure it's not dumb money. Don't just accept the first check that comes across your desk because there will be basically golden golden handcuffs tied to it. Um, When you're looking to choose that investment partner, think of it as a partnership because they as you said, they will want to exit one day, but you also want to make sure that your goals are aligned. So if it's something you want to grow, you want to go to the States, you want to um, develop a new product, you need to make sure that that investor is on board with what you're looking to do. Um, when they are coming in with money, they are coming in with their own money. So they will have some. They will want to have some sort of control. So it's going to be really important to have a think about um, how the shareholders agreement is structured, how the board is structured, what sort of power you're looking, you're willing to give away, because you will have to do that. It's, it's no longer your business. You now have investors that you need to look after. Um, so making is sh- that something that mindset is really hard for sometimes that entrepreneurial business owner to come to terms if it's no longer your business absolutely particularly when you know you're like you know uh, I'm thinking of a particular person at the moment that we ended up investing in you know he started off at his kitchen desk so you know he's it's his baby he was involved with the whole way through everything he's done he's done it on a you know shoestring budget um, he's poured his heart and soul into it but once we come in once a venture capital firm comes in it's part ours as well. It's part the venture capital firm part owns it, but this is also a good thing. It means that they have a vested interest in making sure you succeed, and they have a skill set that you won't have. And they will be able to see that. Oh, you know, look, your marketing department really needs. You know, they need help there, or um, you know, your accounting can be really tidied up. They can maximise value within the company themselves as well. So just thinking that through, making sure you made the right decision on that particular 
partner. Mm. Can it sometimes be just an ego thing where um, I'd no longer have they have that job title or CEO? Yes, definitely. <laughs> I've, se- I've seen that like in the Fin Review recently where, um, you know, the founder of such and such a company has just been taken off uh, the the board as chair, chairman and realistically that's the same scenario you know maybe start out at the garage or something like that but it doesn't have that skill set uh to be a chairperson of a listed company yeah has, has that entrepreneurial skill set of growing mm-hmm. it to that stage but then you're at a completely different um perspective here now mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. and i've seen that happen several times where you do have a limited skill set. Have you like, things, seen things implode because of yes. that emotional attachment? Um, I've been involved in something um, where the founders did not want to exit. Um, the investors actually took over and ended up exiting that particular founder, and that was very messy. Um, was it Steve Jobs? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to mention it, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. um, in, in that scenario, though, you sort of need... You do need to know your own limitations. Like, you may be an amazing founder. You know how to get that uh, that seed funding. You know how to grow that product from the very beginning. But you reach a, a stage where you need help to take it to the next level. And that may be you having to step back and actually allowing that to happen. Um, if you don't do that, you can really cause damage to the business and to your own investors. Uh, and I, at that point, maybe investors may need to take over. Uh, and that that has very, very serious consequences for the business and, and for yourself as well. It's interesting you say that because I've always said I will walk away from any business opportunity if it's run by a rock star or somebody who perceives himself to be a rock star. Um, because realistically, what I've always found in those scenarios is they're not actually bringing up that next generation of leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they might have a lot of people that I have, um, and I've been involved in this in the past before, where have a lot of people always saying yes. Uh, so a lot of what was traditionally known as yes men, mm-hmm. uh, basically, always, which makes the rock star feel even better and feel even better about themselves and f- make themselves feel indestructible at times. And But in saying that as well, is when that person leaves or is bought out, there is nothing left. Mm-hmm. There is no natural leadership within in the organisation. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's always kind of concerned me and I would actually walk away from because mm-hmm. um, i just got that fear of rock star leaves, uh, yeah. there's nothing else there, there's no rainmaker anymore or there's no ego. And, you know, it's one of the best examples I always give of that where Willard sort of doesn't necessarily agree with me, uh, but is Elon Musk at Tesla. Yeah. You know, yeah. so or even Jack Ma at Alibaba. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we actually do own some Tesla shares and Alibaba shares in our portfolio. <laughs> so it's, uh, but in saying that, though, they are you know two rock stars mm. uh, that I think the brand could definitely be damaged if either of them didn't wake up one morning. Mm. You know, so it's um, and I, I think that is a concern, and that's why he's far better than I am. Yeah, by the <laughs> way, so bringing him up in the leadership role, but. Um, from from that then in that VC components is realistically, and we were speaking about this just earlier um, off mic, but it's having everything set up correctly to start with. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about some of the things where you've walked in and said, this is a good opportunity, but saw it as a complete mess and potentially either walked away or what you had to do for the client to get it fixed mm-hmm. up properly? And one of the reasons why is making sure that end result, if it's achieved, it's achieved with 
the greatest results. So it's getting everything set up now so that end result is perfect. Is mm -hmm. that correct? Yes, that's right. And um, I can probably bring uh, one example that just touches on two of the topics we've just discussed. Yeah. There was an entity that we were looking at investing in, uh, which we didn't um, as a result of two different elements. Firstly, the cap table, which was incredibly messy. Can you explain the cap table to um, our audience? Yep. So your cap table is basically the your collection of shareholders who hold, they may hold different types of shares, they may hold different percentages of shares in the company. Um, it's really important to make sure that um, all your shareholders are on side and it's a nice, clean, lean structure. Just because when, when you have investment coming in, they want to be able to negotiate, they, you know, they want to take shares in preference to those other shareholders. Anything you do, you will need per permission from your shareholders to sell or um, you know, potentially to change course of, your, of the structure. Um, the one that I'm thinking of, uh, we didn't end up investing because they had a very, very messy cap table. They um, basically took money from whoever they could, uh, which meant that they had um, a, a lot of different um, conflicting personalities. Um, they were getting very close to um, reaching their shareholder limit, which is uh, 50 for um, proprietary limited companies. Once you get over that amount, um, it basically you have to flip up into a limited company, which has a whole raft of different issues. Um, the second issue was the founder. Um, he was your rock star. Um, and he very much controlled and held um, how everything, how, how the whole um, structure worked. If he left or if he decided he didn't want to do something one day, we would have massive problems. So we actually ended up walking away from that particular um, investment. Adam Newman at WeWork, <laughs> one of the best implosions of all time. Oh, really? Yeah, so just... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so he thought he was a rock star and yeah. he got a lot of money because other people thought he was too. Yeah. Yeah, mm. so it's um, one of the best implosions of all time. But mm. Yeah, so, so based on that, and I think that is really interesting that you say that too, is that sometimes there's a difference between a shareholder and a director of the business. If somebody comes in, as an example, uh, if I own shares in CBA, I can't ring up the chairperson of CBA mm -hmm. and say, listen, I don't like this direction you're taking, yeah. uh, unless my shareholding happened to be th because I own Vanguard or something like yeah. that, different scenario. But you know, just with my you know, $5,000 worth of shares, you don't get a say. And I think that's one of the things too, is that sometimes people think, well, if I own shares in this business, because it's a smaller business, mm -hmm. surely I get a seat on the board mm -hmm. and I now get a say of the direction of this business. If I don't agree with it, I can say no to it. So mm -hmm. not, not every shareholder becomes a director of a company. And I think a lot of people miss that thought process uh, when it's a smaller business, is that correct? Absolutely, definitely. So, I mean, you have as much power as the company gives you under their, the shareholders' agreement. Yeah. Um, but uh, can someone who has a 1.7% shareholding just become feral and ruin everything if all those agreements up front aren't done correctly? Absolutely, yes. Potentially, they might hold out, they might not. Um, well, if you don't have a shareholders' agreement um, and you're looking to do a sale, you there may not be a mechanism to drag you along. There, there may be you may be the one person who just doesn't want to sell, and that might create absolute headaches for everyone involved, and might not even worth the problem. So, it might not even be worth the trouble for an incoming investor or an incoming um, acquirer. That one house owner in the middle of five houses yes, that won't exactly. sell out to the developer. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, yeah okay. Mm -hmm. So so where do you where where do you believe a lawyer should be coming in at that stage? or before you even consider taking a cheque from a client. Yeah, absolutely. Aside from a client, from an investor. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. 
Um, absolutely. I think from the very start of it, from when you're really you're setting up your structures, from when you're going, do I just do this by myself? You know, am, you know, can, can I own IP as an individual? All those sort of questions cool. should be solved upfront. You should have that structure in place. You should make sure you have that. You know, your IP is uh, in a in a safe company that um, you know can't be touched by anyone else. You want to make sure that your investment can go into a company that um, might be separate from your IP. So you've got all those structures bedded down before you even accept your first check because once your first check has been accepted once you have shareholders on board the whole you create massive issues if they don't want to change whatever you put in place yeah so what happens if you have um you've done that you've got a company that owns the ip Mm -hmm. you've got a company that um over here um, owns the proprietary limited and the Mm -hmm. shareholding in that and you have got somebody who's not a director of the IP company and basically it's a case of whether it's misunderstandings or whether there's just something that there's no agreement in place uh, and that IP company has now been offered a check. Um, realistically, because I, I, and the reason why I asked the question is I saw one instance where uh, the accountant very cheekily approached that shareholder who had no active involvement in the business uh, whatsoever and said oh we're just trying to tidy up the share registry here we believe you don't want to be part of it anymore can you just sign these documents oh and <laughs> sounds I, messy <laughs> well I actually wrote back to the accountant and said uh, as a 19 as the client's a 19% shareholder in the business uh, can you please provide the financials for the last four years that have not been provided to my clients and any sales agreement that are in the pipeline. Mm. Um, so, and it's crickets, just mm. gone silence mm. from the, from that accounting perspective. But it was just interesting that I thought that was actually quite interesting to reach out and said, oh, we just want to clear up the share register here. Can mm. you just sign this? And it's like, well, no, you, you first of all, you're not going to sign that. You actually own those shares. Mm. Um, so from that scenario, I mean, you think of it from the my client's perspective, think of it from the company's perspective. Obviously, something's gone on there where they've kept the clients out of those negotiations. Mm. Um, so I, I just think that's a bit wrong. But these things occur every single day in you know, all around Australia hundreds of times, if not thousands of times. Is that correct? Absolutely. And funny enough, we're seeing it much more frequently lately. We've been seeing a lot of um, dis- discord in companies mm. um, maybe it's COVID I'm not too sure but there's been a, lo- a lot of activity around um, shareholders and, and directors and um, uh, shareholder issues at the moment yeah yeah so no I, I you know so it's um, I mean from my client's perspective we have been keeping an eye on the share registry mm-hmm. to see if they are trying to transfer that IP to a new company mm. and things like that as well but it's just like cause it's just gone dead silent so I know there's a trade sale going on there and they're just trying to get my client out of it. So it's, uh, which was quite interesting. So it's, um, yeah, but basically it's a case of if we haven't heard back from you within uh, the next two weeks, next letter will be from a lawyer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so might have your name on it. Oh. <laughs> so it's, 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 that letter. So it's, um, but, but I think so from that perspective, I suppose what we're saying here is when, when, you, when you have that idea of, and it might just be a dream to start with for what that end goal is, mm-hmm. is having everything set up correctly uh, is the most beneficial way with that end goal in mind at all times. Mm-hmm. So you speak about the share registry. If you are going to get somebody else to buy, making sure that that's all done correctly right from the start. But also, too, one of the end goals is, let's say that client wants to get that cheque for $25 million. 
Uh, sometimes having everything set up correctly is that they can keep more of that check uh, upon listing trade sale or VC firm coming in by having all the structures correctly set up to start with. Do you want to touch on that? Absolutely. So I have a client go through this very scenario at the moment. Where Sorry, a lot of a lot of a lot of clients don't think of lawyers when it comes to tax. Mm. Yes. Uh, if that or tax planning, if that makes sense. So if we can mm. touch on that, that'd be great too. Absolutely. So um, as I was saying, I've got a client the, who's going through a sale at, at the moment. Um, when you go through a trade sale, you can either do a share sale or an asset sale. Um, a share sale is where you transfer all the shares over to someone else, whereas an asset sale is when you pick apart the, the assets and sell them across to the acquirer. Um, a share sale um, is far more tax effective. Um, there are certain um, CGT concessions that you can. Um, uh, that you can get through a share sale that you can't get through an asset so sale. So it's like the small business capital gains tax right. less than $6 million in value or owned a business for a certain period of time, etc. That's yeah. exactly right, yes. Um, as a result of the way he has structured it and how he's run the company, uh, a share sale is just not a viable option for this acquirer. Um, as a result, he's going to have to do an asset sale, which will mean he will have a lot more in tax um, as a result of that. I think approximately 800000 is it's a fair bill. It, yeah. So it's a it fair is a bill big that deal. could have been unnecessarily avoided if set up correctly. That's what we're saying here. That's exactly right. To start and with, yeah. Exactly. And that's something that you need to think about from the very start is, is involve your financial planner, involve your tax accountant and involve your lawyer to make sure that you avoid these problems down the end. Um, you know, the cost to do it at the beginning is far less um, than it will be in 10 years time when you're looking to sell. But you can't. Mm. The acquirer will look at it and go, well, no, I'm sorry, I'm not taking that on. That's your risk. Uh, I don't need to. I don't need to take that. Yeah, there's there's a couple of instances on that where you know we've we've seen that where we have a client and um, who owns. Oh yeah, my family trust owns the shares in the business. That's mm-hmm. great. Is it a corporate trustee? Yes, you do. That's uh, that's fantastic. Who's the appointer of your family trust? Mm. And this was a question we spoke about earlier. I asked the client, and he he said, oh well. Uh, he, first of all, he didn't know what an appointer was, uh, and most people don't, mm-hmm. uh, in the family trust. He looked at me with a blank stare, uh, explained what an appointer was, and he goes, well, I'm assuming that's my wife. And my query was, I don't know if that's the case, uh, because you've been married for 12 years, probably together for about 14 but you started the business 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ended up finding out, speaking to his accountant, ended up finding out the appointer on that trust was his accountant at the time because he was single when he started up the business and that accountant had been dead for mm. a dozen odd years. But can we talk about the importance of that appointer and getting that correct? Because if he was selling the business and he passed away, the appointer of that family trust, from my understanding, and you're the lawyer, uh, but they basically control the bank accounts and all of that. Is that correct? Um, basically, yes. I mean, there, there are certain mechanisms that should be in any good trust um, deed to allow someone else to take over in the event of death, etc. But that needs to be maintained. That needs to be looked at and actioned really quickly because if you come to the point where you want to sell, uh, someone's looking, someone's doing their DD and it goes, oh, actually, your appointer is dead. How do I... How do we even do this transaction right now? You need to fix this up. So it might, you know, added cost, out of time. Uh, the, the consequences of doing it later can be quite serious. I did see an instance where it was brought up um, a couple of years after a divorce mm. occurred and the appointer was the ex-wife mm. uh, who had never been taken off. It was just never even raised in the divorce proceedings and was actually never and the ex-wife was and the ex-wife did uh, demand the money to be taken off as yeah. the appointer mm. and got paid. Exactly because I mean legally 
she's still the appointer. Legally, you know, you can't remove her. Yeah. Uh, depending on what the trust deed says, but that's something that should be dealt with as and when events happen in your life. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to IP, mm-hmm. so you're representing uh, the VC firm, you've got a potential uh, opportunity, uh, you both like each other, hands are being shook, there's non-disclosure agreements being signed, you're going forth and they have this great IT product and you walk in there and you find that it's not protected with any IP. Mm-hmm. Uh, the IP on that product or that app or whatever the case is, is not protected. Um, from the, well, first of all, if you were that client's lawyer, you wouldn't have let them walk into those negotiations no. without <laughs> the IP being protected. But can you talk about the importance of where, the, uh, prospectively, the client could end up losing their business or lose that product when that's not actually not protected. Do you want to give an idea of that or Absolutely. some examples of that? Uh, particularly if the value in your business is the IP. Um, the people who created the IP, naturally it may actually vest in them. So your employees who have um, worked on that with you, um, any consultants, um, IP may actually vest in them. So when you get to the point of trying to sell the business along with the IP or you have a VC come in and, and provide investment, they want to make sure that the IP sits in the company they're investing in. They can't. They want to make sure that they're they're actually buying the business that um, can actually do something with it. Um, if that hasn't occurred and no assignments of IP have been executed, that IP could be with multiple different people. That is going to cause massive issues for investment for sale. Um, if you maybe you should have actually registered it, maybe it should actually be a patent that sh- you should have um, registered on the you know. on on WIPO or IP Australia, if it comes to that, you may even be too late to be able to register that and someone may have already taken that idea, someone may have have done it already, in which case... So you could have the actual product Mm. uh, where you think is a unique product, but somebody else has registered that type of product uh, because they're building it now. They actually own that. Does that mean this client could be in... um, well, could have co- end up having conflict with these people who are now building it and you've got the IP or the trademark? Absolutely. I mean, that's a that's a massive IP litigation issue right there. Yeah. Um, technically, you you may be infringing on their IP by doing whatever you're doing. Um, you would Even though you'd been doing that for a decade. Exactly. I mean, yeah. you would actually have to go through a, a very long, drawn-out process of trying to prove that you were the first to market, that you had developed this product independently of this other person who's registered. But registration does create certain rights that you might not be able to overcome. Yep. Okay. So in in closing off today, so final question, when should clients be coming to you? Uh, At what stage uh, should they be coming to you? As soon as you have an idea, (laughs) basically. Okay. So basically... They have an idea and they think the idea is their $100 million idea, so mm-hmm. that's not a winning idea, and realistically have come to you right from the start. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be that expensive at the start. It can just be, okay, well, that's great. Make sure you've just got your company, make sure you've got your trust set up. And that might just be, it might be a couple of grand yep. at the very beginning. And then make sure you check in as you go through because a $5 million company is very, very different to a $25 million company. Uh, and you want to make sure that um, all of those aspects grow along with your company, making sure all your risk profiles, you, your legals, your accounting, your tax, all of that is taken care of throughout the process. Okay, wonderful. Marcia, thank you so much for coming in today. Really appreciate it. Uh, I think that's going to... As I said, we've got a lot of great, very successful entrepreneurial business owners who, you know, they're, they're, a lot of them are about my age and sometime in the next 10, 15 years or even earlier, 
they're wanting that check. Mm. So actually making sure that's all planned for now is really upfront. So uh, we'll uh, have all of your um, contact details uh, attached to this as well so people can reach out to you as well. So once again, thank you for coming in. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Coffin Bond Podcast is a product from Coffin Bond & Co, which we are an authorised representative of Can Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Coffin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Bond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond and Co. and the hosts of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.